0: I'm Andy, and I'm Lev, and you're listening to
1: Snakes in the Garden. So, I initially wanted to start us out by reading, um, and hopefully you're all sitting down and holding under your seats, um, a Bible story. <laughs> uh, which I don't laugh to mock. I, I grew up reading the Bible. My mother was uh, a fairly religious individual, and she believed there was a lot of wisdom to be found in the Bible stories. And I, I happen to agree with that. Um, and the one in particular uh, that I wanted to read was the, the Tower of Babel story. And the Tower of Babel story uh, begins in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Probably, I'm assuming you're familiar with this story, Andy.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing you read it, actually. (laughs) Yeah. What what translation are you using, by the way? NIV, King James, what are we we about to hear?
1: Let me find where I pick this up from. Uh, This is NIV, the New International Version.
0: Perfect. Yep. That's thought for thought translation.
1: There are many interpretations of this story, um, but the most common is that it references the pride of mankind and his consequent downfall trying to do too much, as the kids say. And I'll, there's a couple pieces before I read that I want you to pay attention to. One of them is in 11.4, when the, the collected people were beginning to build the tower and the city. Uh, they said, so that we make a name for ourselves. But I'll go ahead and start. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and settled there they said to each other come let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar then they said come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth but the lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. That word, Babel, is generally linked to the Hebrew word Belal, which means to confuse, which makes sense. But some sources say that it was adapted from the Sumerian, uh, which means gate of God. And there's an interpretation that says that this myth itself was drawn out from A Sumerian story called Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata, which is from about 4,000 years ago, which also features similar themes, the construction of temples in a city in order to achieve godhood, and a resulting confusion of tongues. But it's so in uh, 11.4, where it says, make a name for ourselves, the people were trying to make a name for themselves by building this tower, right? the Hebrew word that is used for name is Shem. And there's another similarity there to Sumerian. Uh, in Sumerian text, there's something called a nam shub. And in the Sumerian, uh, a nam shub is any type of incantation or chant that holds a deep power or like a spell, I guess, would be a, a close, a close translation of that. But there is a Sumerian story related to the Babel story uh, about the Nam Shub of Enki. So Enki is the lord of wisdom and abundance. And he cast a verbal spell so strong that it collapsed the universal language. So it's interesting that this, this Nam Shub, this spell, is both a story of the breakdown of a common language and the name for the incantation itself that caused that breakdown.
0: I'm thinking I want to share two thoughts. Okay. You know, and it's worth mentioning for our listeners and and you, I believe you know this already, but we are, we're in, you know, a, a religious tradition that I call home. Mm-hmm. And there are some things I pulled out of the, that reading that uh, I am going to go research at a later time. And there are places I go regarding biblical or scriptural scholarship and my old testament is not as strong as my new testament um familiarity and by no means am i uh, a scholar or a even a high functioning student of, right and i
1: myself am not a, a scholar nor a historiographer or right. any of
0: that is that is that a word
1: <laughs> historiographer yeah um
0: okay I never it heard is that.
1: A historiographer is someone who is tasked with telling the stories of history rather than okay. researching got it. the history.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful word. So the imagery that I got as I was listening to you read, what I am going to go research is what sounds like. I'm not sure if I have it right, but it sounds like God observes the significance of the structure they've built already. God concludes that if they're able to do this, nothing is impossible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, God makes the decision to confuse mm-hmm. and stop the effort. I am curious about my conclusion about that. And if that is accurate, why, what, mm-hmm. what do the scholars say about that? Cause that's interesting. Cause there's a, there's a quality of that that's about setting limits for some mm-hmm. reason.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Um, stifling, stopping, you know, there's, there's a quality of that that just conceptually seems inconsistent with what the creator or what God would feel about a big building.
1: Yeah, I think. And as you kind of mentioned interpreting biblical text or any uh, historical text, especially biblical, it's a very sacred tradition to be able to translate or interpret, uh, to argue you know, about the meaning behind those. And I read it very similarly to you. It, it seems interesting to hear a story that sounds like it is about the human race edging closer to Godhood for lack of a better expression and God taking a peek down from the heavens and saying, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh, you may not. This is not
0: for you. You know, on Google, Lev, I quickly entered, why did God stop the Tower of Babel? Just to see what the search results would be. Sure, okay. And this one jumped out at me very quickly. When God saw the tower was being built, he knew this would lead them away from him. He confounded their language, causing them to speak in a variety of languages so they wouldn't understand each other. Thus, God thwarted their efforts and caused them to scatter all over the face of the earth, arguably to reorient or reframe the pursuit of something outside of self rather than the fulfillment of all self has to offer. You know, it's funny, our our messages that we hear in self-help and business and so many other religious categories of thought are about self-awareness, self-awareness. And I agree that that mode of life and thinking has enormous utility and value. I do that and love what I come to understand about myself in the service of goals outside of myself. And a distinction between the way I live my life and the Tower of Babel is, I, I think of the story of Achilles. You know, you can live a peaceful life, you can have a loving family, or you can go to war. You're gonna die an abrupt death, but your name mm-hmm. will be remembered for all of eternity. What did he pick? You know, he picked. I'm, I want. I want my name to to live for all of eternity.
1: And if we and hadn't picked that, we probably wouldn't have heard a story we about
0: it. We wouldn't have known. And when I hear to make a name for ourselves, boy, that really does have nothing to do with selfless thought. It, it's it got to do, you know, the engineers building the building, they're going to be celebrated. The, the masons, they're going to be celebrated. Now, the motivation on one hand seems harmless enough, but when you think about the full implications of what that means... I can tell you today that I've lived a life in pursuit of self-satisfaction where I'm setting my own goals and I'm the master of my own universe and boy, did I make a mess of things. And I know plenty of people who have reached heights of money and power along those lines and there's nothing there that's really that attractive to me. To me. And to understand that Requires self awareness and self analysis. <laughs> so it is this interesting, circuitous relationship. But when I think the self awareness is in the service of something greater than self, I think aspiration and technological advancement is great. And I think we saw it kind of solve the question in this discussion. It sounds like if God concluded nothing will be impossible which ultimately is going to lead away from relationship or union with him. I could see the motivation, you know, what would what, what would a parent do to a child that was astray? Would they let them endlessly endanger themselves or would they try to organize circumstances so that the, the kid comes back into relationship with the parent? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, Um, I think of how it is in the common parlance to refer to God as the father, Mm. uh, to see a relationship with God as one similar to that, to one one with a parent. And I think I have never been a parent Mm. for disclosure, but I think the question of what kind of parent do I want to be would often would come up for anyone, regardless of whether or not they have children because we, Inevitably think of our own parents and the type of parents they were for us. Mm. We see where they were Successful or great or selfless or kind or strong. We see places where they fell short Where they were weak or unkind or unavailable Because they're human right and we're left with a a void of wanting to know how to be that in the world, how to not be what we saw as bad and how to be what we learned was good. And that's an eternal quest. And I absolutely understand looking to religious or spiritual guidance for that matter. And it it does like beg the question, what kind of parent do we believe God was? And I see, and maybe this is a slightly different interpretation than yours, but I see a parent as God in the story where he sees his children capable of doing anything and removes from them that, that capability. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a little bit of a different context there that you're alluding to where there's a sense of pride and self-worship over relationship and collective kindness that uh, clearly has a, a downfall. But I also see maybe that play out in different ways with different parents where parents can have an insecurity about their children becoming greater than them, that the parent, what they want more than anything is for their child to have a relationship with them. But I don't think that's a very noble goal in parenting personally. I'm
0: so glad you just said that. (laughs) I, I think you're onto something there. And, and that was, that was my initial, like, God can't, I cannot imagine God being insecure now, someone, I'm sure, could say, well, of course he is. Okay, but yeah. let's take for a yeah, moment... Yeah, the jealous that...
1: God is a popular... Yeah. <laughs> we won't go yeah, there. Yeah, but we, we don't...
0: Go there. the, there's, I don't see any jealousy anywhere else in the Bible, unless, arguably, that the, if there is any jealousy, and I'm not saying that there's jealousy, but what comes through in that is, if we leave aside the idea that he was acting from a state of insecurity, arguably the one thing that he would be jealous of if we're entertaining the idea of jealousy is life taking away his children from him. And he saw the evolution of the building as a pathway to that. The jealousy was more oriented toward genuine love and interest in the well-being of the people rather than a self-serving concern that human beings would ultimately rise to a level of greatness beyond them however the phenomena that you described of parents being insecure around their children to the extent that children can sometimes be suppressed and have their light hidden under a bushel so to speak another biblical reference yeah um, yeah,
1: if you said Bushel, I assumed. people yeah. don't say Bushel in standard. yeah, yeah. <laughs> life.
0: <laughs> uh, the point being I've, I've certainly seen that phenomena and periodically have had uh, as a boy experiences of that. And uh, I don't see much constructive coming coming from that when our children are are suppressed or limited based on parental insecurity. Uh, About something. You know, we're not helping the, in in fact, we're saddling the kid with the responsibility to caretake.
1: Well, there's, if we get away from the idea of insecurity, and I promise I'll wrap us back to some other kind of point eventually, but if we get away from the idea of insecurity, it seems like there's this inescapable trap of parenthood, like a catch-22 where you as an individual, as a parent, have a vision of what a good world looks like, Mm. of what a kind and loving world looks like. And you have values, you have virtues, whatever they are, and you cannot help but want, but hope that your child might embody what you've spent your whole life coming to understand as virtuous and value-driven and representative of a good world and good behavior whatever that is, you want your child to be good. In that, in any category that you create of what a good world looks like, of what a good self and human could be, there must be something that is excluded from that. If this little circle is what it means to be good, then everything outside of that circle cannot be good. But as you as a parent have undoubtedly come to understand in multiple ways, the challenge with people is that they believe different things than you. They see different things as good and worthwhile and of value, and it can be very difficult sometimes to find a way to align your vision of a good world and a good person with what that person believes is a good world and a good Mm -hmm. human. You don't want necessarily to stifle them. As you said, you're doing this out of kindness and love for them because you think you know what's up about the world. You've seen some shit.
0: Or there's the Babel phenomena going on. The, or we have static in the communication, we have misunderstanding,
1: right. And ultimately, like the goal of of youth or of being a child in the world, whether you're young or old or whatever else, that is you are tasked with determining for yourself what is good mm. right. Mm. And that's kind of the whole point in a lot of these biblical allegories is that, Man must always be able to see the good and the bad and consciously willingly choose the good. You know, God definitely could have made it such so that there would never have been any evil and there would never have been any temptation. Yet there is. We must figure out for ourselves and come to believe for ourselves how we want to be in the world. And yeah, that can be that can be complicated. (laughs) That's all I'm I'm, I'm driving out there.
0: Yeah, well, I think life is complicated. Uh, I think human beings are complicated. When we think about perception, interpretation, trigger states, you know, that's a a real popular word that's being thrown around right now. So much of that being attached to this Tower of Babel story, the origin story of interpretation and perception. Mm -hmm. A building was being erected of... Tremendous engineering capacity that contemplates synchronicity in communication between human beings, efficiency in communication yeah. between human beings, people harmonious in their language and interpersonal interactions, and and here we are today, you know, uh, the antithesis of that, having having such difficulty. With so much effort being placed on changing the world and changing the environment, and in my view, not enough messaging at all about people engaging in the far more short-term benefit work of personal awareness over what they carry with them, i.e. shadow work, in their interpersonal interactions with others and the trigger states that can occur as a function of communication, as a function of interpretation. You know, I I love that I have a shadow coach right now because I can break down things that happen that I don't particularly feel great about after they happen mm-hmm. to understand what happened in the first place Yeah, <laughs> during yeah. the thing, you know, whatever the thing is. And I had a thing. Uh, about a week ago and and had to get with Shadow Coach and and break it down because I wanted to understand this is how I felt during the thing this is what I was hearing I I don't understand why these two things were different and I didn't feel good about it Mm -hmm. and I, I was able to break that down it was it was pretty profound was pretty profound. I, I felt as though I was the beneficiary of accusation that was inaccurate. There was definitely some truth to my appraisal of its inaccuracy because that eventually came out.
1: But what is watching it that you how, were accused
0: of? I had a meeting with an executive team that I was asked to attend mm-hmm. regarding uh, some feedback they had received from an employee. And the employee had reported a sense of offense a word and a phrase that they heard me use Mm -hmm. during the course of uh, some meetings that they were in with me. I was unaware that this person had drawn this conclusion about uh, this word and this phrase, but they did not approach me. And instead they engaged a process of reporting through informally uh, their internal hierarchy And the person was not even present at the executive team meeting when it was called for me to engage about the subject matter. So, for the purpose of my shadow work, uh, I actually gave this event a title. The title, I wrote it down. The title is The Shame Ambush by the Executive Team.
1: (laughs) Woo! I'm very much in support of, of naming things, as we're obviously discussing. Words, language, naming. Has
0: power. It it did. So my shadow coach actually walked me through a worksheet she has created with very specific questions. In the interest of efficiency, I'll actually share it. Well, I I would at least
1: like to know maybe one of the questions on on that worksheet for self. Oh, I'm going to give I'm going
0: to give you the categories. Yeah. So anyway, in the short of this meeting was it it wasn't bad, but it didn't go as well as it could have. And I was very interested in better understanding why I felt the way I felt. Why was I feeling shame? Why was I feeling anger? Why was I feeling fear? So I'll I'll quickly walk through this template without giving the template away, but I'll <laughs> share with you categorically what it, how I broke it down. The trigger thought was accusations not anchored in complete truth. So appraisals of me were being formed that were not anchored in complete truth
1: right you're saying or, or, you you did say the thing but the judgment that they made about you based on the thing you said in your mind was untrue
0: and and you there will. were other and there were other factors about the complainant themselves that were not part of the discussion that i thought should have been So the story headline for this became the shame ambush by the executive team. My top emotions during the course of recalling what the trigger thought and feelings were, were anger, shame, and fear. The next question I was asked was, if I were to envision what the perfect world outcome of this would have been, what would it have been? (laughs) My imagery of that was they would have recognized the wrongfulness of the approach and asked for a do-over, that somehow they would have observed that I was unnecessarily being beat up, backed up, and said, wait a minute, um, let's go about this a different way. I was asked to describe them uh, in the context of the approach that was used,
1: by them. Does that refer to the person who the was executive offended, team. No, or the, the, no, people the people who confronted the you? The people okay. in the meeting.
0: Yeah. I wrote destructive, messy, and useless. This process was destructive, messy, and useless. Why is that so bad? I was then asked why is that so triggering to you? And Good I question and I thought about that and it was it interferes with the amicable ability to engage in business and relationship. I have a business relationship with these people. Business, this this kind of stuff interferes with the free and peaceful and amicable exchange of discourse to do business. So the root fear attached to that was professional reputation and interference with the business relationship. I provide services, they provide me payment. This thing that they're bringing up is going to disrupt all of that.
1: That's an interesting point because that disruption that you mentioned for you, what am I trying to say? That disruption of this meeting, of this intervention is your personal disruption, not the disruption of the person who experienced offense. Like, your concern wasn't that they were disrupted from, the complainant would be disrupted from having a relationship with you. Your concern was that you, because of this event, would be disrupted in your ability to have a relationship with them.
0: Is that that accurate? It is accurate. And I would say that I wonder if I would have appreciated what you just said more if the complainant was there. But sure, the complainant if they addressed was not it directly
1: there. with you. Yeah. Which uh, they did or, not do.
0: or if the complainant was even present in the meeting, where an appreciation for the experience of offense that the complainant had. <laughs> you sound so judicial ha- sometimes. Well, I mean, there was no space for it. The, and yeah. and what I mean by that, there was no space made for it. Right. The the orientation was this happened. It was no longer even about the individual. It was about the idea yeah. that someone was offended. That became central to the discussion. So I would agree with your appraisal in that how the person's experience was of it wasn't part of the conversation. And what I'd offer in reply is the people who brought this to me didn't make that part of the conversation. It, yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was, it was, it was, there was an offense, stop. Well, wait a minute. What was offending? We can't get into that. They're not here. Well, what exactly did they conclude? We can't get into that. They're not here. No,
1: Why aren't but then they here? They...
0: Right. <laughs> so uh, how do I avoid? I was asked, how do I avoid being the way that they were? In other words, this is so unsettling to you to, to observe the destructiveness, the messiness, the disruption to business relationship. How, how does one avoid being like that? And my answers were immediate. Being deliberate, being restrained, simplifying things, being targeted and efficient. For instance, one way of handling it. Hi, Andy. We understand this word and this phrase was used in a public setting. Uh, notwithstanding whatever context it was, and we're not going to make any assumptions, in our particular workplace, that word and that phrase could be viewed as controversial and we're going to ask that it's not uh, utilized done <laughs> the whole thing would have been over in 5 seconds that's simple restrained efficient there's no appraisals about or value statements about i mean i certainly know the context in which i used the the word or phrase and and frankly if i'm apprehensive about sharing them because I don't want people who are part of the organization who know me to draw conclusions about who these this group of people are, etc. Suffice it to say, the word and the phrase hardly in everyday parlance really rise to high radar levels. These are extremely low-level words that were used to describe a context of something, not any human being. I don't feel I was afforded that reputational dignity that i i have no history of being offensive toward human beings i can appreciate someone might not like a word used
1: i don't know what where my thoughts are going with this but it's, it's a tricky it's tricky business trying to patrol people's language right i might be able to say hey hey don't please don't say that like that that word hurts me that word is offensive to me to another person like let's say andy you said something that offended me and i was like i could say "Ooh." I would it would make me feel good if you avoided using that word in a few fu- in the future because reasons. And you as my if friend. If you appealed
0: probably... to me that way, whether I agreed with you or not, ideologically, if you appealed to me that way, it would be instant. The well, adjustment right. would be instant.
1: And I, I think sometimes when people make requests about language, there's a couple oh. other points that are often missed. Because I as well, if someone said, yo, please don't use that word. That's offensive to me. I would be like, no problem, buddy. I got you in almost any context I could imagine. Mm-hmm. But often what they're hearkening to isn't that it's just the language. It's that it's that they want you to believe something different than they think you believe. It's like, how could you have if you really knew or really cared, then you wouldn't have used this word.
0: Right. And that's the thing that's got nothing to do. That's 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 got nothing to do with the word. That's got to do with people who at that moment are identifying or recognizing that they're probably on two different pages when it comes to that thing. And the presumption that someone should be somewhere else is really shadow stuff. It's not about, it's not about the other person's wrongfulness initially. I I think the trigger state is a function. But why is that so startling to you? When you hear that word and you feel triggered, rather than the blanket conclusion, that's offensive. Why is it offensive? Why is your needle moved? And if you can at least explain that to yourself and to someone else, then I think a meaningful discussion can be had. But if it's someone who just is who's making that claim because they've heard it elsewhere and there's no personal attachment to the claim and an appraisal is being made of the word being used that they say is offensive and there's no substance there, what are we doing? Where is someone's unique and individual investment in that idea showing up?
1: I'm curious how one might establish that a connection to a word has substance or not. What do you mean? If we... Like you're referencing this person had beef with a word or phrase that you used, but you weren't talking about them or any specific individual. Correct. Or even from what I understand, referencing a group of people. This wasn't like something that was like derogatory toward Mexicans. You didn't say wetback.
0: Correct. Did you say wetback?
1: No. You didn't say wetback, right? No,
0: not even close to anything like that.
1: (laughs) So. If we are to establish that someone's claim of offense has substance, what needs to be used to determine that? Is it is a personal relationship to that word required? It could that be one of the considerations? Like for example, let's say you say "wap." People don't say "wap" anymore. Hating on Italians is kind of out of vogue, but I'm Italian. Maybe I find the idea of being referenced as my family coming to this country without papers offensive because I'm Italian. Maybe that could have merit. Now, let's say I'm not Italian, right? I can still recognize as someone who's not Italian. Uh, we kind of culturally consider that offensive because it's referring to a group of people in a in a dehumanizing or belittling, diminishing sort of way.
0: But look, pr- you... you- But you just brilliantly described why, even though you're not Italian, why the use of that term got on your radar and created a trigger state. Because it dehumanizes in your experience and opinion other human beings. And as an employer, how does one evaluate a claim of offense? I do understand the dilemma. I think one of the ways to mitigate bad outcomes is to engage a process that this is going to become a training from us, Lev, by the way, in the future. <laughs> training this, we're for gonna, employers we're tackle about how this. to
1: deal with employee well, concerns about offense.
0: I've seen these kinds of complaints move labor organizations to action at very, very high levels in high group numbers. And no one has gotten to the substance of why it was quote unquote offensive. No one has even talked about that. The mere report that it's offensive without any meaningful dialogue or substance about context, what it actually is, appraisal of the thing that has been identified as a source of offense. So let's say, I mean, here's a perfect example. You use the example of the without papers acronym WAP associated to people being Italian. I've heard that term my whole life. If I read the term WAP off of a historical document and someone is upset that I didn't censor that from reading the document to a classroom, does that mean that I used the term, is that offense legitimate enough to mobilize an internal system of complaint so that I who read the term in the classroom as a function of reading a historical document gets hauled into a meeting and told, on the next occasion you come across that term, You have to censor it from reading. See, like, that's how I think this goes in the extremes. And we do need, I think, tools and more education around how to process these complaints. Because I think most of the people who have to manage these things don't know how to manage them. Look at what I just went through, for example. A term that is not even anchored in race, a term that I used in the course of describing an ancient and old mode of overpowering human beings to do what you want them to do was experienced as offensive. Then,
1: Like Neanderthal or something.
0: Right, like I I used a word like that and someone was offended by it. That complaint made it to the highest level of the organization without that person being present and I'm getting called in to discuss it the discussion, interestingly, included an application of the term that I did not use. So I went through this for a while, listening to Listening to a description of my behavior that was inaccurate. Now, going back to the, the shadow process, I'm appraising how I was feeling while I'm listening to this. Accusations that are not anchored completely in truth, that's the trigger thought. Because it's not anchored completely in truth and what's being shared as the truth is shaming to me, so I'm referring to this event as the shame ambush. Mm -hmm. The process that they engaged in, I found, was destructive, messy, and useless. Mm -hmm. Why was this bad? Because it interferes with my ability to amicably conduct business with them where there's an exchange of goods and services for remuneration. The root fear was that my reputation and mode of living was going to be impacted mm-hmm. in an unjust mm-hmm. way
1: the core fear yeah right that's the social root fear. ostracization rejection all, all of yeah. that
0: and it's and it's and it's uh in in ccis terms we would call that a seething trigger uh Say it injustice again? in ccis terms we would call that a seething trigger
1: seething okay
0: right because it's got to do with uh injustice so Here's what I learned out of this process. I learned that when I observe recklessness, unnecessary complication, and wastefulness of gold, or if someone is wasting some other kind of gold, these are all things that I won't get into in this discussion, sure. but that have deeply modeled experiences in my relationship with dad. I had it modeled most of my life that you you are not reckless, you are calculated, you are mm-hmm. disciplined, you are committed in what you do. That complications... That was, that was how he
1: showed up or that was how he saw you?
0: That was how he showed up. And that's uh-huh. what was modeled to me. Be pure, be efficient, dispense with wastefulness. So I have I have a natural sensitivity when I see those things to my arousal spiking, mm-hmm. when I see that. And... Rather than have that pattern drive my appraisal, now that I have an opportunity to see it, I can do my best to suspend it and try to experience whatever it is that I'm observing or witnessing without those trigger states driving my emotional response to the content. That's the gold of of all of this. I don't begrudge any person their experience of offense. I don't. In this case for me, I was involuntarily put in a process that was reckless, complicated, and wasteful, and it had a direct relationship to my root fear, and as a result of this process that Coach took me through, I feel much, much better about the takeaways. There are some things I did in that meeting that I do feel proud of. Uh, how I handled certain uh, parts of the discourse, mm-hmm. um, and what will happen next, I think will be helpful. But uh, I also saw, so so all of this babble. This was this was babble stuff, and yeah, this stuff happens in organizations every day. It mobilizes departments to action. It's mobile. It's it's rich within our politics and our culture right now. This notion of offense, without ways of measuring that or discussing that in a way that results in true transformation after the event, wouldn't it be interesting if someone was offended in an interpersonal interaction between two people? An actual positive transformation could occur as a result of how that was processed between two people afterward, and in a workplace in a required way.
1: Yeah. I mean, like you and both of us have mentioned before, what often drives that change is an investment in the relationship itself. If you have no investment in the relationship itself, then you have very little investment in understanding. And yeah, it's it's funny to start this off with the Tower of Babel and of the Namshub, even, because we have this myth that defines that clear communication is so hard. It's such a lofty goal that there are like ancient stories about how the gods themselves made it impossible. (laughs) And as you mentioned, you know, through this, this process of shadow work, this, this worksheet, this exploration of how this impacted you, when we hear another person, even if that's speaking through a process or just directly face to face, we don't just hear them. We hear our history. Mm -hmm. We hear our culture. We hear so many contexts. We cannot experience communication that is not first filtered through us.
0: And Krishnamurti is the first guy to to start really talking publicly in the 20th century about can one approach a moment completely new? Can one actually do that without memory? almost deactivating that function of the brain in perceiving. He contended that it's possible, uh, but what you what you described is exactly what happened and is exactly the basis of, of shadow work. What am I bringing, and how is that influencing what I'm perceiving? Yeah. You know, which really gets heavily philosophical, which, you know, begs to that question we always hear about and see all the time, if it's perceived if it's not perceived is it even really there is it there in the way that we perceive it to be there you know i mean i don't want to wax that way in this conversation <laughs> but but that's you know that that seems to be where we go in these talks and i think at the end of the day here i think one of the fundamental components of the crisis we're in nationally is anchored in this example that we've been talking about for the past 45 minutes Someone someone reports an offense, a hurt. And if we have no structure to manage that, if we can't entertain that some ideas are more truthful or accurate or real than others, I don't know how we get past it. And I think our bent in this direction is based in this notion that everyone's report of offense does not require appraisal.
1: I see an interesting challenge within that, because if we acknowledge that in communication, in listening and understanding, we cannot remove the self from that experience, then that also means that if someone or even a group of people is tasked with assessing a complaint of offense, their assessment will carry them with it. (laughs) Yes, equally complicates it. And I, I don't think that that's inherently bad, but it bears, it bears consideration, like who is doing this assessment and what are their benchmarks and what of their history and their culture and their experiences and their knowledge are going to play into those benchmarks. You know what I mean? Like I could be a person who is from another country was a different cultural experience. And I'm in a class and a professor says something and I'm like, whoa, that's deeply offensive to me and my culture. And I bring the complaint forward because it's very important to me. But the person assessing my complaint has no understanding of my culture or why that was relevant. Am I then to be tasked with, you know, giving this person my entire cultural history just so that they understand why this was important? No, And, and not that's at an extreme all. example for well, sure, I mean, but I, I'm just naming the challenge and like assessing whether or not something has validity in itself. There are, there's some challenges there. That's all I'm getting at.
0: Yes, I, I would, I would completely validate that idea, which speaks to the necessity of a method that does not include or is sensitive to the bias of the administrator of the method. And that's a requirement that we have in the justice system. You know, lady, lady justice ha- is holding the scales, and the idea here—you know—you've heard that expression, right? I may not be saying uh, yeah, it. Yeah,
1: the, the the listener can't see me, but I'm grinning suspiciously at the mention well, of the justice system.
0: <laughs> you know, the 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 idea here is that the the reason we are a, a world and a nation of laws is so that shared rules can result in some kind of harmony. If there are no rules, um, it's pretty hard to organize people around no rules. So what I'm proposing is that the absence of a process to manage these kinds of issues and instead imposing the notion that everyone's report of offense is valid does not lend itself to organized constructive management of the outcomes of these problems. And and
1: as we mentioned, I don't think that any process which would not involve having the person who experienced offense present could embody that.
0: Right. Precisely. Like we obviously
1: have to have them in the room.
0: And we see this play out in the news. We see it play out in almost in theater where a complainant can issue a complaint. We don't know anything about the complainant or the complaint itself. We only know about the report of the complaint and other people are involved in managing how that report of complaint is going to influence the world around them.
1: People who might officiate this process are tasked with determining what is harm, Mm -hmm. was harm caused, and essentially how much harm are we or are we not willing to accept through the course of this interaction. What did this person intend and what was the impact? And if you weigh too heavily on either side of the other, you miss important pieces of the conversation. I could have the purest intentions in the world and still say something that was real fucked up. You can't solely base my intention to determine whether or not This thing deserves attention. Nor, as you're saying, can you base it solely on the impact. I hear some shit, it fucks me up for three weeks, but that wasn't at all what you intended. So, if you're basing it solely on my impact, like what does that mean? Do you get punished for what you said? You know, where do we go with this information? And obviously, everyone has a different baseline level of acceptance for the things they hear and how they impact them. This person drew offense from what you said. Whereas someone else in the class may not have batted an eye at it. And obviously you're always going to have that human element. But again, how does one, how does one weigh? you know, like you mentioned scales of justice, lady Liberty is a, (coughs) you know, we have that here, but it's, it's tough stuff. And I think about how communication in an ideal world is between two people, a two player game.
0: Well, and if you strip, if you strip that fundamental from the process itself, to expect that there's going to be a constructive outcome i think is kind of not anchored in the data
1: it's it's um, foolish that's for sure but you have to you not you you but there there no, must be it. some acknowledgement that you know within that two player game we're not always beginning as equals i as a professional must recognize that if i'm in a professional environment if i'm a supervisor and i have supervisees i have people whom i am responsible for it's an implicit part of my role to understand that I'm going to be doing more work in communication in that two-player game than they will. It is more my responsibility to make myself understood in that situation than it would be for them to try and understand me. That's that is how I see that world.
0: Uh, let me offer a not same but reasonably similar perspective. I think we get into trouble when elitism and egalitarianism switch responsibility. I think the world functions better in the workplace and at home when people are equal, ideas aren't. And we have things backwards today in many circumstances. In structures where people are unequal and all ideas are the same, I think we get into trouble. And I think that's what describes another way of saying what you were just saying. Yeah, there's a power dynamic. Someone may not feel capable or able to air their complaint because of a power dynamic. I would argue that the culture of that organization has set the situation up to structure is so that people are unequal and ideas are the same. Ideas need to be better than one another. There are some ideas that are better than others. There are some ideas that are bad. But if people are equal... Arguably, the supervisor would have an obligation to pursue creating an environment where the employee is completely comfortable in airing their complaint.
1: We're also talking about about parenthood, essentially, too. Yeah. I mean, I see that there is an inherent power dynamic between a parent and a child, especially if we're talking about a young child. This young child has less of a capacity to understand me than I do to communicate. So therefore, it is my responsibility to help communicate more clearly, to make myself better understood, because this person may not have the tools or resources or knowledge or experience to get what I'm trying to give. And if my goal is to be understood, I have to pull my weight there and I have to make sure my message is able to be understood by my audience.
0: Well, and as and, a parent, you have an obligation to raise the kid. I mean, it's not well, just because... and that's because exactly
1: what I'm getting at, too. Ideally, not only am I pulling more weight in making myself understood, I'm also pulling more weight in building up that person's capacity to and interest in understanding. There but you I go. think there are certain roles in which that simply isn't fucking possible. Like? <laughs> uh, let's say I'm at work in a retail position and I am communicating with a customer. I would love to be able to enhance that person's ability to understand me and to communicate in the world. But am I being paid for that? Is that person there for that experience? Is that person willing to engage in that experience? No, they probably aren't going to do any of that and they don't give a shit. So my responsibility moves away from developing the other into just making myself understood in a situation where I can't develop another person's capacity to understand. If I still want to get to this goal of being understood, that means I got to do a little more.
0: So do you remember, um, prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, Lord, help me to understand rather than be understood. Preach, preach. This is not a new idea. This is not a new idea. What we're talking about here. I
1: thought this was a new idea. Let's just end the podcast now. No new ideas. Where am I even going?
0: (laughs) Look, we got to get to where we got to get to where environment is safe for people to air how they feel. People have an obligation, I think, a duty to themselves to know why it's important to say something about something. If you see it, say it. Okay. So you don't like something that you heard said. Why? Because it's wrong. Why? Why for you? And yeah, these are I would questions
1: love that for people to be able to elaborate more on the the mm-hmm. characteristics of their beliefs
0: certainly but, before formalities are mobilized certainly and what about complaints of uh, of a harassment category or type that are aired in the court of public opinion before the facts are weighed and I I think, there are people who really, really are that egregious that public safety should be uh, inclusive of public notification. This is why we have websites that allow you to see, you know, the proximity of where you might be living in relationship to someone who's create who who has committed sex offense. Mm-hmm. Isn't it amazing how damaging it is to other people when that category of assertion is made, and someone has not even. Been processed by the system. In our local community, when kids use that kind of uh, name calling, you know, when people play around with those kinds of assertions or accusations, how that kind of nonsense has the propensity to even stick. The ill impact of that is so significant. Imagine if for one moment they thought about why this other human being that I'm going to. I'm going to describe in this manner why this other human being is making me feel this way. Why do I feel the way I do that I feel like I have to do this? And where is that coming from? If that were a function of the decision to call someone something they're not yet.
1: I would love for there to be a process that invited self-exploration when decrying another human's way of being in the world. I would love Mm. for that to be true. Uh, I would love, like we mentioned earlier, for there to be a process of, I won't say of determination because that, that still wraps me back into the same problem of, but who is doing the determining and do they really have the capacity to determine? I can't escape from that one right now, but at the very least a process of, of some kind of restoration and, I think about the types of situations that you're somewhat alluding to, like, for example, someone in the community is being accused of being a rapist or of exhibiting, at the very least, sexually predatory behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, that would be a criminal accusation. And the courts have a way of assessing, was this rape or was this not rape? Now, I personally have some issues with the way that that process is handled. I would never bring someone to bear upon that process because I see the way that has an impact on people's lives. And I do Mm. have empathy for the reasons that people take the actions that they have taken. However, I'm not left with very much. Let's say I were to enter into a circumstance where I confronted this person who behaved toward me in a sexually predatory way. And I said, hey, buddy, listen, I have something to say to you. This is an observation of the behavior that you exhibited toward me. Objectively, these are the things that you did. This is how that made me feel. This is how that impacted me. Where might I hope to get with that? And I have done that. I have named to people, hey, you did this shitty thing. Just want you to know about it because it was kind of fucked up. Please don't do it again. You know what I mean? Of course I've done that. But at the same time, for that person to take that information in in any meaningful way requires them to see me as a human who they desire to understand and show empathy toward. And research supports that most rapes and sexual predatory behavior are not about sex, they're about power, which requires them inherently in behaving that way to see me as less than a person. So why would a person who whose behaviors are centered around showing that they are more human and more powerful than others, want to listen to someone who they have intentionally or otherwise disempowered. It doesn't make sense. Again, there isn't a good process for this. I have to examine what I hope to get out of that. And I think a lot of these public outcries that you mentioned are coming in wake of not knowing what to do and just hoping to keep other people safe. And I agree, some of those accusations may come more from a personal wounding than a realistic time-based assessment of that person's behavior. But from an outsider, one, how can we assess that? And like, two, what are we supposed to do about it? You know what I I mean? There's a big problem here.
0: I have to say that I have a, just from my experience, and this is just my experience, I have a different view on the motivations to do that the finger-waving that you did this bad thing in philanthropic social consciousness motivation.
1: Sure. That's how it's I, posed as. It is right. not always but we, that. It right, is often I, just a self-protective.
0: Right. <clears throat> or it's coming from you know the limbic system and a, a desire to be punitive or to get back at. And I think, Lev, where you and I definitely meet in the middle is this idea that Culture change is like pushing a big rock up a long hill and we're dealing in capacities. And I think the first step in getting people to become more self-aware is is really where the change is going to begin because whether or not someone who's engaging in predatory behavior toward me needs to see me as a human being is, in my view, less important than me being able to say to that person, I'd love for you to develop an appreciation for why that kind of behavior with me is a source of offense and is not going to work for me and it needs to change. Which is the same, it goes to the ethos of why we do it the way we do it in crisis intervention. We intervene in situations in such a way that we reduce the likelihood of future emergency. Not eliminate it, but reduce it. Mm -hmm. Can we today start the process of people more comprehensively, anchoring their report of offense in an experience to begin to impart some kind of understanding in other human beings that when they're engaging in behavior that's being perceived that way, that we can begin to come closer together in relationship. Can we start that? I think certainly in formalized systems of where people are organized, like the workplace, we have to put some structure around it because the absence of, of structure uh, around it I think is becoming problematic. So let's start working on that training.
1: Yep I'll, yeah look, I thought you were about to say, let's start working on that problem right now. I'm like, yep, going to work today. Well I, I,
0: I think I think in short, the bottom line here is to develop curriculum that imparts to all people who go through it and appreciation for certain core values. Can we develop capacities to understand and validate one another beyond what comes conventionally in those kinds of situations? Can we put structure around that where human beings develop understanding and greater awareness than what we're getting out of these interactions now? Because I think what we're getting out out of these things now, limbic system, ping pong.
1: Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, I love the quote that you brought up earlier. Who did you say, Saint Francis, Saint Augustine?
0: No, Francis of Assisi. Francis
1: um, of Assisi, Saint Francis yeah. of Assisi. You know, well, Augustine lead... said,
0: "Lord, deliver me from the lust of vindication." Ah, uh, well, I... he can
1: take a back seat <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love the lust of vindication. Don't get me started. <laughs> um. Um. No, that we ourselves, and especially as crisis responders uh, showing up in someone else's emergency, we have, and to me this comes back to power, but we have that responsibility of seeking more to understand. That Mm. is my task and my duty. And we have to recognize that that's important because people seek to be understood And I am really curious if any person who has reported offense, you know, let's say the process doesn't end with them going to the human resources department and saying this person said a shitty thing and I'm offended. We need to go investigate them. Like what if that process included something that involved trying to be more understanding to that human, right? Like not only tasking them with being able to articulate the nature of their offense, I think that's important. And I also know that that's difficult, but for the person who hears that to be able to say, okay, like tell me some more about that. What was so important about that for you to show empathy and curiosity to that person, because that is the, that is the, 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 core human need there for them. They that's, I mean, and I can't speak for everyone, but I believe that that's what that person would hope to receive And I believe that's what they thought they weren't receiving from you, theoretically, when you said these things. There was this Uh, underlying assumption of, of course, this person doesn't understand me or my feelings or my worldview, or else they wouldn't say that. But creating the opportunity for you both to have greater understanding of one another, for you to hear this thing you want, which is, why does this offend you? What about this is important to you? And for them to hear, hey, I care about why this is important to you. I don't want to damage this relationship. I want to show up in a way that's healthy and helpful for the relationship that we have.
0: Imagine if that process occurred right there when it happened. I think you and I have to be part of the work to start moving people in that direction. Resolving particularly these conflicts around reported offense.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that would be beautiful. I mean...
0: Let's go after I, it. Yeah, I,
1: after I, have, it. I want. I would ideally like to get to a space where nobody's concern is diminished. That the fact that someone is having a limbic system response doesn't invalidate the nature of their complaint, and that that complaint has a space to be heard and adapted to for you know reasons to be elaborated upon, but also that like life is uncomfortable right? We, we know, and Lucia brought this up last episode, we know that there is a zone in which I'm comfortable and a big zone outside of that where I'm not comfortable and a little space in the middle where I can be challenged. And I think we could all do better about staying in our challenge zone and hearing what's useful and necessary from someone, even if they say some dumb shit. With,
0: with effective forces of mediation, Lev, with effective forces of mediation, some structure around yeah. mediating the challenge, because the the, the 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 jam right now is people are willing to step into the challenge space w- without all of the tools and without all of the awareness and to try to make sense of that when it could be so much better.
1: Yeah, it just could how be. can we support people in getting there?
0: I I guess the way for the thing that I would love our listeners to understand is I'm finding for me tremendous value in this shadow work stuff. And there are ways of going about it that are less philosophical and more pragmatic that I'm finding very, very useful because my interest is self-regulation and the peace that comes with self-regulation. Even in extreme circumstances where I may conclude that my character is being assailed or a fear is, is being antagonized. It's the shadow work that gives me control over those states that would occur by function of pattern. The more that I can make the unconscious conscious and
1: would you be willing, I know you did read them out loud earlier, but would you be willing to share the questions uh from that worksheet that I, I i tell you're... you what i would
0: i tell you what i would rather do this worksheet was a product of someone's um ingenuity labor i'd love yeah. to have them on the program and they can talk about it
1: absolutely would you be willing to could we name this individual
0: yeah here or um, would you rather wait to no for permission I, I, to do that uh, no not at all okay yeah so uh, her name is cass Wojcik. w-o-j-c-i-k cass is on linkedin And on Instagram, on LinkedIn, I think the name of her enterprise is Witness Your Worth. On Instagram, I think it's Bliss From A Rose. But Cass is putting together tremendously functional tools that are efficient in leveraging Jungian psychology and shadow work. Initially, we started uh, doing this work in the context of my business relationships and uh, now we're getting into some other areas and these tools that she has constructed are really just terrific and that's that was the wor- the worksheet stuff i had done with her uh, about this meeting
1: awesome yeah. thank you so much for sharing that i think i think our listenership is going to get a lot of value out of out of this talk and thank you for taking the time to do this with me this was a really awesome and tough and interesting and cool conversation
0: i think so too all right. All the best, friend.
1: Thanks, Andy. And thank you to our listeners for sticking with us. This is Love, and you've been listening to Snakes in the Garden podcast. If you have questions or feedback for myself or for Andy, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.